Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Good morning and welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business meet the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest that I'm very pleased to say is Flora Davidson, co-founder of Supply Compass, the end-to-end fashion software, changing the way that brands and manufacturers work together. It's really clever, so stay with me for this hour. Flora and her co-founder Gus Bartholomew met at Bristol University and noticed that small UK fashion companies face difficulty in finding international manufacturers. With her early career in global innovation and strategy in the fashion industry, Flora then spent two years with Gus living in India, working with manufacturers and factories to ensure a unique grasp of the challenges this side of the business. After a crowdfunding campaign to develop the technology, they launched Supply Compass in 2018, a cloud-based software allowing brands to build trusted and, as they say, radically transparent supply chains, aiming to make sustainable sourcing easy and cost-effective for brands and every player in the chain. As Laura says, we believe that for sustainable sourcing to enter the mainstream and become the only way to source, it needs to make business sense. If designing and producing sustainably was easier, more efficient and more cost-effective than conventional ways of sourcing, then everyone will do it. Supply Compass now provides access to over 200 hand-picked responsible manufacturers, mills and suppliers, mainly in India, but also in Portugal, Nepal, China and Spain. It's really nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, help me understand how your life moved towards this notion that the world needed a business that was going to help businesses manufacture sustainably. What happened in Flora's life that this was the conclusion she came to? I mean, I always think, I always try and reflect on that point and I always kind of want to come back to this pinnacle moment where I thought, this is what I need to do. This is where I'm going to go in life. Unfortunately, it's less exciting than that. It was gradual. Um, I think really in my kind of early working years, I I started to get interested in this theme of sustainability from a consumer um, lens. And I was working as a researcher and I thought, I always thought I was going to go down the documentary filmmaking route and and it kind of became quite clear quite quickly that I probably wasn't going to go down that route and actually applying research to different businesses could potentially actually be more interesting for me personally. And so I, in my kind of early research years, I was, I was doing a lot of research around the world, mainly in America, South Africa, France, and saw these kind of themes of that, that customers really cared they wanted to know where their products came from the provenance element and yet businesses it just wasn't matching up so I think that's probably the early the early phases of it but it didn't start when I was you know three I suddenly thought this is what I need to do and in terms of the the piece around sustainability I mean obviously as a researcher as you said you you bump into mega trends and brands are really interested in mega trends either because they're worried about them they need to address them or because they want to jump on them you know proactively make more money let's be honest but sustainability is a different thing were you an eco warrior were you someone who kind of really cared about the environment or again was this more of an intellectual curiosity that you went hold on a minute there's a gap here I would like to say was an eco warrior but it wasn't that I think what I've 
always be, and this always sounds a bit of a fluffy statement, I've always been interested in people and what makes people tick and what worries people. I'm quite an empathetic, I feel people's emotions um, kind of personally. And so for me, the sustainability conversation and, and feelings was actually more of a human one. And and really, as we were trapped with living in India, and we can obviously talk about that in a bit, it, it was, it started human and then became environmental as kind of part and parcel of that. So yeah. And in a nutshell, how do you describe your business to someone who hasn't heard of it in your own words? This is, this is something I sometimes struggle with. How I kind of would describe it to my mum, who actually now can, can describe it very well, is we essentially call ourselves a production platform. And really what we mean by that is that at the heart of our business, we have this software that makes it easier for brands and manufacturers to find each other and work together. But then underneath that, and this is where the complexity lies in describing it in one sentence, because I failed there already, um, is that we have this- I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have told, I mean, I didn't point it out. I didn't need to. You just did it for me. But you're right, utterly failed on the, <laughs> on the one sentence test, but that's okay. You've got another chance okay. in the elevator. Okay, okay. And one the pitch more. is- <laughs> In, in a nutshell, as you kind of read out in the, in the initial kind of intro, um, we are combining software with community and an ecosystem that has shared similar values and think that the solution within supply chains is that the two work effectively together. Great people with great mindsets, and that's factory owners, suppliers, brands, kind of working together through a standardized system, which is our software. Wasn't one sentence, but it was pretty good. <laughs> and you've also burst the bubble of the Wizard of Oz behind the thing. You said reading, as if I've read anything here on Jazz Shapers. I mean, honestly, okay, maybe occasionally I do, but not not when we're in the middle of the conversation. But you're absolutely right. I don't mind. Anyway, we're being transparent. What's your title? Are you the CEO or something? Have you got a good no, title? No, I'm not. It's, it's actually, it's, it's, I've kind of struggled to find the right title. Oh, Chief Commercial Officer. That is it. That's that a good it. title. So yeah. it's businessy. It's businessy. I sit in the kind of sales, marketing, positioning, strategy side of things. I think it's quite hard when you're not the CEO as a joint kind of pair running a company to find your title, but I'm not too fussed about it. Actually. Well, it's about what you do, right? Exactly. And um, we, we were talking before about, the, you know, you describing the business and evidently complicated things in complicated worlds are not, you can't redact them into one sentence. Or if you can, this probably means there's lack of nuance, right? Let's just say that. You don't lack nuance for all, which is why it took you so long to describe your own business. But it, it, in terms of the, the the two of you setting up this business, did it very quickly emerge who was going to do what? Gus was always the CEO and that suited me fine. I think I quite like being the kind of uh, next to a leader. I find that there's less pressure and you kind of have the freedom to maybe think a bit differently um, and there's no expectations on your role which I quite liked um, so I think really from the outset so I mean our roles have evolved over time as the business has grown and, and there's new parts of the business like I'd never ever run a sales team before and that was a whole new I, I've had to learn a lot of skill sets and what, what I've really done is since the start I basically be I am a function and then we work out that I'm not amazing at that but it's enough to set it up and then we hire people in so I basically set up each team and then remove myself um, and find people who are better than me and that's I've really liked because I've basically learned a lot of skill sets from doing and it the quite bit, well and the bit before hiring all these people how many people are now in the business we are 19 of us now and a year ago we were four of us so the last year has been quite overwhelming particularly at the start suddenly bringing on a lot of new people but now I really enjoy it but I do when when we were just two of us in India there were two back in London and two of us in India 
it's a it's a really exciting phase of the business and if we really think about what the funnest part and the most exciting and unkind of charted it's that part yeah and what about the raising money bit so t- talk to me a little bit about that because you're a young business you've obviously you needed some investment if you wanted to grow and it's the classic conundrum how do we do this we haven't got enough money who's going to give me the money now that we go and find the money tell me a little bit about the experience of that and the honest truth mm. she's smiling slightly here because i've got a feeling that it's not it's not much fun it's I, I think fun would be the wrong word yet to describe it. I think I'm fortunate that Gus, I think, finds some perverse fun in raising funds. I think it's definitely the part that you don't, I hadn't really thought about in running a business was where you're going to find money. I prefer to make that money ourselves. But I think from the outset, we really saw that to make the change happen that we need to make, we have to be big and to be big we've got to compete with people who've got a lot of money um and so we have big ambitions therefore you need the you need the money in the initial days to go with that raising money uh i generally now get involved later stage in the process um but it's it's a full-time job um finding finding that next that next raise really um and we raised our first round about three years ago um and it's if i if i was to say the one thing that really keeps me up at night the thing that makes me anxious it's running out of money and and that was an anxiety that i hadn't really kind of felt before because when you're employed by someone else you have your paycheck if you then lose that job you can go and find another job but if it's your money and you've got all these people you're paying salaries to that's it's it's nerve-wracking and I don't think people talk honestly about it enough. And if that's the one worry, which is a huge worry, I mean, that, that would define all worries, I, I imagine, if you're in a business. What's the one bit of advice you'd give to anyone who's thinking about raising money? Don't worry about it until it gets really last minute. If, if you're three days away from running out of money and you haven't closed investment, you can start to get a little bit worried. But not until that point when you really like there is nowhere else to go. But I think what we've realized is that as a as people running a business, getting really close to the bone is what sharpens us as a business and has made us do better at the back of it. So, yeah, I, I think um, be comfortable with discomfort all of the time, because that is something that I think the resilience aspect, which everyone talks about when you're running a business, you cannot underestimate how important that is because it's it's exhausting at times and you do just sometimes have to kind of laugh it off and ride it through. Stay with me for my business shaper who laughs it off and rides it through. It's Flora Davidson. She's the co-founder of Supply Compass. Lots more coming up from her shortly. But right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all of the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Dereas, Susie Sendama, and Emily Dorothea talk about how fashion brands can be more sustainable while maintaining profitability and what consumers should be doing to support sustainable fashion. The Mishcon Academy digital sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. New mindsets need to be adopted at both business and consumer level, but it's it's difficult to see why brands would make the changes that are needed unless there's a change in the law. From a consumer perspective, what can we as buyers do to put more pressure on the way suppliers operate and support sustainable fashion? So certainly from the perspective of taking buying decisions, I think there's quite a few things that consumers can do. The first thing that they can do is when they come to buy a product, they can embrace Olivia Firth, who was the founder of the Green Carpet Challenge. Um, she came up with a will you wear it at least 30 times test. Um, so if you do think you'll wear a product at least 30 times, then yes, buy it. If you don't think you will, then don't. 
You can also avoid environmentally unfriendly fabrics. So for example, denim is incredibly thirsty. It needs a lot of water. Anything with sequins or glitter that's been bleached or anything made from nylon or polyester because unfortunately they release a lot of microplastics when they're washed. You can also do some investigating to see what actually, what sort of what credentials the brand that you're thinking of buying from has. So we have what's known as the B Corp accreditation, and that's a certification for responsible businesses. And I think one of the most famous retail examples of that is Patagonia, the outdoor clothing company. You know, and as a firm mission, we've got a longstanding legal partnership with B Lab who issue the B Corp criteria, and we can provide businesses with legal advice about how they can go and certify uh, and get a B Corp stamp of approval. You've also got lots of material out there online. Um, You've got everything from Common Objective, who have a list of global ethical brands. You've got Positive Luxury, who have a list of ethical brands who enjoy their butterfly stamp of approval. And so any luxury brand that has the blue butterfly mark on it has been confirmed by Positive Luxury as being sustainable. You can also look online at a brand's website to see their environmental statement. We've got a website called Lawfully Chic that has lots of ideas for sustainable brands. I mean, so I think there's definitely a lot that you can do at the buyer end. The Mishkan Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishkan.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkan Dorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can hear all our former Jazz Shapers and hear this very program again with Flora by popping Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play Jazz Shapers and there you will find many of the recent shows. But back to today, as I said, it's Flora Davidson, co-founder of Supply Compass, the end-to-end fashion, see if this works for you, the end-to-end fashion software changing the way brands and manufacturers work together. But that doesn't really say what it does, I suppose. That's just no, about change. No, but I think you need to, uh, it's you pretty good, work though. for us. Well, I think it's more Stuart. That's the, as, uh, as Flora so delicately said, uh, there's bits that I read. Occasionally I do read things, but not very often. Most of it is just us having a conversation. <laughs> And me going, what am I going to ask her next? But it's okay because there's so much to ask. Um, In terms of moving to another country, pretty radical thing to do when you set this business up. And you said, you know, the thing that sharpens you is the thing that you're being close to bone. Living in India, and I did that many years before. I think you were eight at the time at the end of the 90s. There you go. Just showing my age and yours. It's a fabulous experience and you do feel like your senses are sharpened every day because it's so stuff happens. And even now I imagine it's, it's a very different place, much modernized in many ways. It's still unpredictable. Is that unpredictability, was that unpredictably important in, in shaping the way you thought about your business as you lived in India then? Definitely. And I think we, I don't know what it's like to start a business based in the UK. Um, I think being so fully out of your comfort zone, really, I didn't care what people thought. You know, when you start a business, people go, oh, that's quite risky. Oh, that's a good idea. Being out of London, away from this kind of, you know, all of your friends and family and your kind of safety net, but also your biggest critics. We were just, at, people just thought, what are they doing over there? And then maybe they'd see something on Instagram, you know, a few months in and say, oh, they're just, you know, visiting lots of factories and who, who I don't really know what supply companies are doing. But I think um, what the biggest thing that we didn't really expect was how the the kind of entrepreneurial mindset of of 
people we met across the country, all of our factory owners, most of them were essentially entrepreneurs. They had set up their own factories. Their pet, not all of, a lot of our factory owners aren't kind of third generation factory owners. And so basically everyone we were meeting was entrepreneurs and we stopped, we stopped, we didn't classify ourselves as that. But I think when everyone you're meeting is trying to build something and trying to kind of keep it afloat and, and get something off the ground, it was, we learned a lot more um, than I think we would have done. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You couldn't have done what we were doing from a desk in London. You know, it would be hypothetical. So I think that research in me was like, just get out there. So two weeks of every month. So we had a, this tiny little co-working space that was actually a club in uh, Bandra in North Mumbai. And at three in the afternoon, the music would start getting really loud just as the UK was coming online. And so we would we would have kind of thumping beats in the background. And that was our office for two weeks of the month. And then the other two weeks we would, we would be on the road in factories all over the country, literally just, you know, researching, speaking to people and then rocking up. And I don't think they, they, they were just like, who are, who are these guys? This is the most random business. But I think we, you know, we found the people who bought into our vision and they, they're still with us. And being a, a woman in business in India, I, again, um, it's not an unusual thing, but it's, it's less usual than a man in business in India. How has that been? Because we talk about sexism in this country, but of course, it's a very different, very different situation across different parts of Asia. Uh, and knowing India a little bit, it can be really, really tough being a woman there. What's it like? I mean, I can't speak on behalf of what it's like to be an Indian no, woman. But, but, but for you but as for an me, English, yeah. um, it really depended on which part of the country I was in. In Mumbai, a lot of my Indian friends were single females who were renting flats on their own, which again is hard to do. And, you know, they had to get their dad to say that they could rent this flat on their own. And they were quite feisty and fiery. And I learned probably off of them. But I think some of our factories are run by women, which is very, very unusual. You know, the factory scene is quite dominated in a senior role by men. I think I got quite used to me and Gus would appear at factories in the first kind of 20 minutes, you know, they just wouldn't, the eye contact wouldn't come to me. It would be, what business would you like to be doing with me? And Gus would be the person they'd be doing business with. But I just, I, I think after a while, I mean, we've met some amazing business females across the time. So I don't, I think what's in, what's interesting is actually from a, our tech team, which is who are based in Hyderabad, finding female developers is something that we're really trying to focus on at the moment. But yeah. We're in month eight or something of this extraordinary time of this pandemic. I understand that it's actually been, if there is a, without this sounding weird, it's been incredibly positive for your business. There's been more inquiries than you've ever had before and more things are going on. Why has that been, do you think? What's happening? Yes, I mean, I think it's worth saying that it's been positive for us as a business. It could not have been a more challenging time for our factory owners and also the brands that we work with. But I think for us, I, I kind of reflected on this a lot when it was kind of peak, peak lockdown. And really what my feeling is, is that everyone being from home, uh, working from home and having a lot more time to reflect. I think the fashion industry moves at such a pace. It is new, 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 new all the time. And that is that is the unsustainable part of it or one of the unsustainable parts of it. And I think we'd often have to speak to businesses, say, yeah, this sounds great, but I haven't got time. The self-reflective period that everyone, us as a business, we've gone through and really honed what we care about and what we want to focus on. I think people who otherwise hadn't taken the time to think and now thought, right, it's, it's now or our business is probably going to die unless we take this direction, whether it's dying in five years or 10 years or in a year. I think it's like, 
it's it makes also makes business sense now mm. to be doing this. So so from an, an, in terms of approaching you, has it been the brands that have been approaching you mainly? Are those the people that have gone, hold on, how do we do this? We need to be more transparent. We need to get our supply chain right. Yeah, it's, it's mainly, so our, our customers are brands and manufacturers, though our factories don't pay to use our platforms. So ultimately, our paying customers are brands. Um, there's a few things. There's the kind of, the sustainability is, we don't kind of sell sustainability. It's just part of, you know, what we are about as a business. So really why a brand would come to us is to save them time to make it easier to have access to better supply chains. But a lot of it is around efficiency. And there's a lot of furloughed teams out there and redundancies. And these businesses need to keep doing what they were doing before with less people. And you can only really do that if you're supported by an efficient process. And people often haven't made that quite unsexy marriage of um, technology and efficiency with sustainability. Um, and often it's, you know, there's a lot of focus on supply chains and materials, which is really important. But a lot of it is down to really, really poor process, really bad buying practices. So people buying, committing to something and then pulling out, but there's no official contract. If you've got technology in the middle, then it makes people be more rigid and more structured about how they behave with their supply chains as well. Stay with me for my final chat with my guest. That's Flora Davidson, and we'll be playing a track as well from Kenny Garrett. And that is all coming up in just a moment. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, my business shape is Flora Davidson. We've been talking about her business, Supply Compass, which is all about supply chains and transparency and doing it the right way, making sure that the right values are adhered to and the right processes are in place and this, this fusion of technology and people. I touched on the pandemic and we talked about what's been going on into the business. But within the business itself, how have you handled it in, the, in your leadership position, in your ownership position? Has it changed the way you treat your own people? Were you always really nice and fair before or has it given you a keener sense of what's important? I think that the period since March has been, from what I'm sensing from the team, probably our most, our kind of happiest period in terms of level of connectivity weirdly obviously none of us being together but we all now actually speak much more regularly and much more often and I think something that we kind of didn't think about was that so we've got three offices and we didn't we we were quite disconnected between the three of us but now because we're all online the whole company feels much more connected I think that it's been a more human time where people have felt more open to be vulnerable um we're you know if everyone's homes in the background life comes into your work a bit more and we've really encouraged our teams to work from wherever they want to in the world so one of our team has just been based in Athens for the last six weeks she's just come back and we want to celebrate that and I think what it's really made us do since the start of lockdown we've been having these conversations about our new working setup and what we want that to look like and it really seems that this kind of nine to five a hundred percent of the time in an office we will never return to that. So I think it's, I feel like it's brought us closer together. Everyone has been working harder. And that's something that we also have to be careful not to burn people out. But I think that almost people are able to lead their lives a bit more around the outside. And I think this obviously isn't something that's unique to us, but it's made running, I don't know. I sometimes I think it's harder running a company through a, a, a computer screen. You can't pick up on cues of how people are doing. But at the same time, it's brought everyone, I think, more connected and close together. 
And just thinking about the next few years and assuming that more and more businesses get it and they start to address the issues that your business is focused on, what's the shape of this business going to be? Are there going to be 300 people? Is it about the size of it? Is it about where you're covered? Or in your own mind, what's the vision, as it were? I think the vision is is not necessary to be massive in terms of our team size, but but massive in terms of influence and network. And, and you know, at the heart of our business, we're a software, so we can scale hugely without necessarily needing to scale our team massively. I think what it may look like, and this this could well change, is quite distributed teams. Ultimately, you know, we need to have presence in the countries that our manufacturing is going on, and that will never disappear. You need to have people building relationships face to face. You cannot build a relationship with a factory over the phone. So that is something that we want to scale that kind of clustered approach anywhere that we're producing in. And then maybe give that freedom for our teams to be moving around those places wherever they see fit. Like ultimately being flexible as an organization is going to be increasingly important mm. to attract good people, I think. And just before I ask your song choice, it, it just occurs to me, you, your own life has been a researchy one. You said, oh, I was almost a filmmaker. You know, you have that. Well, no, in the sense that you were thinking about it. These I were wasn't things. almost a filmmaker. No, 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 really, in your head, in your head, you were almost a filmmaker. You even thought, should I pursue that? But you've ended up being an entrepreneur. Are you a reluctant entrepreneur? Are you just um, one that sort of bumped into it or are you actually going do you know what I really like the freedom and I like this is me have you discovered the thing that actually makes you happy yeah I think I I hadn't kind of thought when I was 15 that's what I want to be my mom actually says otherwise she said that I I wanted to go to art school and they my parents said no no you must get a real degree and I said that is a real degree and they go okay you go and get a degree from a different university and if you still want to do art out the back of it we'll support you in that but I think I realized that I all the jobs I had the things that I was dissatisfied about really now make sense to me that it's because in my heart I don't like to have something set out and charted for me I really I get excited and I revel in the unknown and being out of my comfort zone and my parents always said this to me when I was growing up that that I always used to want to change when I felt comfortable I, I left a school before I'd outgrown it and I said I need to move schools because I, I think I need to be a smaller fish in a bigger pond and it's weird for a 13 year old to say that my mum was like quite taken aback but I think that now and that moving to India and I lived in Paris for a year and I've done quite a few things on my own and I think that really maybe that's at the heart of what an entrepreneur is is that you you and I don't classify myself as so I think I find I can't I can't feel comfortable with that term but I don't know how I would go back to working in an organization where everything was kind of set um I like I like to not know where we're going and then plan that route to get there it's been great chatting to you Flora and that makes sense um, and have fun not knowing what's going to happen next and uh, and living on the edge a little bit. It sounds like that keeps you happy and, and keeps you focused. Just before we say goodbye, though, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Yeah, so this song, was it was a clear choice for me. Kokoroko, Boosie Junction. I mean, some people may not call this pure jazz. It's got lots of different influences, but I came across this song and within, I think within about 30 seconds of hearing it, I thought this, I I got addicted and I couldn't stop listening to it. But I listened to it first when I was on a long train journey in India. Um, And it was on the Giles Peterson Way Out Here kind of album compilation that he pulled together. And then I went on a trip this January to Senegal and had an amazing few weeks there and listened to it again on repeat and it would crop up 
in different cafes down the coast. And so it really, it makes me think, even though there's no connection to India at all, it makes me think of these long, winding, never-ending journeys that we really were just on all the time all around India. So yeah, I think it, it's it's amazing. I got to see this song at Glastonbury last year. I missed the entirety of their set, but managed to get this last one. I'm glad they saved it till the end. It's amazing. Coco Roco with Abusi Junction, the song choice of my business shaper today, Flora Davidson. She talked about being comfortable with discomfort, really critical if you're going to run your own thing, about when you're close to the bone, it sharpens you. I really like that. Time to reflect, she said. This has been a time to reflect and it's been a really good time for everybody out of this very difficult situation when you can actually start thinking a bit more deeply about the big things that really matter. And finally, about her entrepreneurial trait, she's never liked having something set out for her. It all makes sense, doesn't it? That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.